there's a term we throw around now, and it seems that everyone knows and maybe experiences it from time to time. FOMO. The fear of missing out. I, Drew, your humble horror host, could be the poster boy for this very real feeling. My whole life, I've felt that need to be included. To be at every concert, every party, every gathering. The times where I've needed to sit things out were brutal, at least mentally, because my mind would run wild with every possibility that I was missing. The inside jokes, the memories. For those of you out there who are fans of How I Met Your Mother, you may remember an episode where most of the characters had an incredibly memorable night, and the one who stayed in just couldn't understand why they all kept shouting, THE GENTLEMAN. I'd like to think that it's simply that, not wanting to be on the outside of an experience. But I'm starting to believe that it's more about my fear of being alone. Because being alone means that I have to be with the one person that I can never shut up, or run away from, myself. Hence my need to constantly have music playing, or a movie on in the background. These distractions help fill the room, make the sensation of being alone feel less tangible. Many folks are introverts and relish the time they have to themselves. But more often than not, I'd argue that these bouts of isolation are counterbalanced by being around others at work or while out shopping. Human beings, for the most part, crave contact with others. Without getting into notions of evolution or creationism, it seems that humans are like most mammals, pieces of a larger puzzle, a part of the pack. There is safety in numbers, right? In simplest terms, being a part of a group is essential for survival. The dangers of the night are easier to handle in groups. We shield the weaker members while the braver or stronger keep watch. Of course, these are just the blind, pseudo-philosophic musings of a guy who truly hates to be alone. But that aside, is there something to what I'm thinking? The familial unit is a pack. Coworkers form packs. Political ideologies form insulated hierarchies to defend against perceived threats. States, countries, larger and larger groups of like-minded individuals, even whole societies, cultures. When we do not toe the line, or act in a fashion that is within proper decorum for that particular pack, we run the risk of being banished or ostracized, which, in turn, removes our security blanket. We are alone, again, forced to face dangers without backup. Maybe that's the true essence of FOMO. Not that you'll miss out on the fun, but that the act of being alone has the ability to remind us just how vulnerable we really are, how quickly we could have our lives snatched away. Without the safety of a group, we are, in essence, forced to contemplate our mortality alone. In doing so, we often have to explore our own courage or strength. That's why we date, why we marry, why we form friendships so often, because we don't want to have to wait for dawn alone. So what happens when your support system is taken away? What happens when you're forced to go it alone? Will the minutes crawl? Will whatever lurks in the darkness sniff out your vulnerability? 
Will you simply wait and pray for sunrise? Ladies and gentlemen, the doctor is in, and the haunt is on. Chapter 17 Kate Coleman was no stranger to either emergencies or their most logical responses. On two occasions, she was the first bystander on scene for the smoking, mangled remnants of head-on collisions. She'd helped the victims staunch bleeding and excise their broken bodies from between dashboards and bucket seats. Blood didn't turn her stomach, and she didn't slip into panic when faced with physical trauma. Maybe this resolve was a product of having an MD for a father, with his many emergency room stories and library full of colored illustrations of brutalized human anatomy. Or maybe it was the part-time job she'd had during her undergrad. While dorm life and frat parties had their own share of crisis response, from sexual assaults to overdoses, she worked as a call dispatcher at Milwaukee General. On top of directing bleary-eyed family and friends to either the correct intensive care room or to the morgue, Kate had been responsible for communicating life-or-death situations over loudspeakers and mobile phones in rapid succession. Lives truly did depend on her maintaining order in times of chaos and ruin. Yet now, standing on the slope of her cracked driveway, feeling the rain soaking her hair and through her clothes, Kate Coleman felt frozen in place. Denny's jeep, having disappeared from view, left Kate alone in front of her house, alone in the neighborhood, in the subtle half-light of a Sunday morning in Georgia, and it took every ounce of effort Kate had to turn back to the carport door where they'd helped a semi-conscious Kyle through only minutes before. Her dogs, Roxy and Echo, were pressed against the glass pane of the screen door, not wagging or wobbling like normal, but rigid, eyes focused on Kate as if she were their prison warden. But their pathetic stares weren't what paralyzed Kate in the rainy driveway. Nor was Kyle's still visible blood trail and sudden exit. Nor the events of the previous night and the subsequent cleanup. It wasn't the whole host of events this house had thrust upon her or the sheer desperation she'd felt for months, but something simple that kept her frozen. Behind the dogs, Kate could just barely make out the shape of something, the form of a man, A shadow, mostly, a black silhouette, unmoving and massive, nearly filling the doorway. Though features weren't visible, Kate could feel the thing's eyes on her. She knew it was studying her, like prey in the wild, or a squirming insect under glass. There was no code for this. She'd memorized the list while working at the hospital. In Wisconsin, code browns were common because of severe weather, and she'd actually had to call a code pink on a few occasions to let everyone know a child was missing. But by far, the code she'd sent out the most was blue. Someone was dying. There was no one left but her. The other three occupants of the home had just torn off to seek medical attention, and Kate was stuck in the rain. Who was standing behind her Labradors? Trying to think logically was ridiculous. Kate knew who it was, the same entity responsible for her dreams and nightmares for subtleties of moving objects and the overt anger that had ravaged their belongings, the force who could disguise itself as her husband or mother-in-law, who could freeze the blood in her veins. 
a vicious, hateful presence that the internet lauded as a saint. A golfing buddy who shared war stories at the VFW, but not the deed to his home. The man who Kate was sure had loomed over his poor wife the way he now loomed over her dogs. Who loomed over Kate's very existence. Patrick Westerberg. Fuck him, Kate thought, in a sudden burst of indignation. He can have the house. He could have the entirety of the southern United States for all she cared. Kate made her decision then and there. They were going to get out. She'd insist they pull up stakes, lose the money and her job, though she'd been ignoring emails for over a week by that point, so employment security was tenuous at best. They could sell it all, let some estate sale company come in and liquidate, much like they'd probably done when Rose Westerberg had made the decision to vacate. They could stay with Denny's folks for a time, or go back to the safety net of family in Wisconsin. Hell, Megan and Kyle would let them crash at their Washington home indefinitely. But Kate was getting ahead of herself. Step one was triage, to deal with the current trauma before attending to the long-term care portion of recovery. Kate knew she had to get moving, to push herself into action mode, but where would she start? Denny was going to need her at the hospital, as was Megan, so the priority was to get herself together, get in the car, and follow them to the hospital. But what about her dogs? Could she leave them in this house alone? Normally, this wasn't an issue at all, but after the events of the last 24 hours, how could she? Sure, some might think her selfish, worrying about the well-being of canines when her husband's best friend had just been attacked by a snake, but let them think that. These were her kids. Roxy and Echo were a priority, but she couldn't bring them with her to the hospital. A plan formed in her mind, and the intricacies zapped her feet into motion. By the time she'd reached the screen door, the shadowy figure had all but dissolved, and though fear still clutched at her heart, Kate opened the door and ushered the dogs from the house into the adjacent laundry room. Though it shared the same foundation and footprint, this space wasn't connected to the rest of the house, not a part of the arterial flow, and somehow, Kate thought that this would have to do for the time being. Once she'd given each dog vigorous head and ear scratches, she closed the laundry room door. Then, Kate grabbed her cell phone from the countertop just inside, retracting her arm fast as if she'd been reaching into an oven. Scrolling through contacts, Kate found who she was looking for. Though it was still early on a Sunday, Joan Coleman answered after the third ring. Her voice was ragged, clogged from a night of snoring, but she still sounded motherly. What's wrong? Despite everything, Kate's first reaction was to get defensive. Why would she assume that something was wrong? Because of course she would. The woman had felt it too. No matter their differences of opinion, faith-based or the sitting president, Kate needed Joan more than she'd ever had before. This interior dialogue was preventing her from speaking, so Joan spoke again. Kate, are you okay? Is it Denny? She was the helicopter mother who met well, but followed everything out to the worst conclusion. Years as an insurance agent. So... She naturally reminded Kate of constantly checking for lumps, or that Denny wasn't too young, especially with his drinking and smoking, for a heart attack. Or is it the house? Joan's voice was stern, not scolding, but resolute, and it broke Kate's pacing silence. Yes, Kate said, and just let it all go. Her encounter with the Joan thing in the basement, the nightmares and the cold spots, 
Her words came in gushes, sputtering like a kinked hose, and she related her dreams and illusions, their meeting with the ghoul society and the savage beating their house had taken while they sat in a seance circle. Joan was quiet while Kate spoke, her steady breath being the only reminder to Kate that the line was still occupied. And her mother-in-law didn't interrupt, didn't interject her own reasonings or solutions. There was no, I told you so, nor was there, you shouldn't be messing with the occult. And Joan Coleman did not insist that Kate get down on her knees and pray. She just listened, until Kate paused to take a deep breath. Then she asked, what happened next? We cleaned up, Kate said. She was making laps around the half-empty carport, trying to ignore the whimpering of Echo and Roxy in the laundry room. My teapots, even those you got me, all gone. We can always get you more teapots, Joan said softly. But it was like whatever is in here, in this house, chose those things specifically to hurt me, to hurt us. Kate was speaking, but realized she was stalling biding time before getting to the acute trauma of the morning. Maybe because that's when she'd need to request help. Joan made the leap for her. Where is everyone now? At the hospital. I'm the only one here at the house. This morning Kyle was... Kate said, pausing. Kyle was bit by that fucking snake we saw. They were down by the pool, I guess. Then Denny was dragging him up the stairs and putting him in the jeep. They took off. That was like 15 minutes ago. Go to the hospital, Joan said. But the dogs, Kate said. They're just in... They are dogs. They will be fine, Joan said. I'll wake up Barry, and we will be there in an hour. Don't worry about your girls. Kate felt a surge of gratitude, and she wanted to cry, to begin the ugly blubbering of her teenage self, but she held back and said a simple thank you. Then another thought occurred to her. Keys. They were still in the house, and that meant going in fully alone. No husband or friends, no dogs. And even though from her vantage point in the carport she could see the black shape had vanished, Kate knew it was still waiting for her inside. She knew so much more waited for her in that house. I've got to go back in and get my purse, Kate said. So go. You need to be strong right now. Denny needs you. Not to mention your friends. Mom, Kate said, her eyes searching the dim contents visible through the screen door. She could make out a pair of her open shelves, with three of the remaining unbroken glass containers resting. Ovals of black chalkboard paint graced the sides, and though she couldn't make out the words from the distance, she knew they said sugar, rice, and treats. Treats was spelled with a Z, Denny's imitation of how the girls might spell the name for their milk bones. Next to these shelves was the metal cactus they had nailed to a wall stud its curled limbs serving as hooks for jackets and an assortment of keychains and bags. Her bright yellow Hufflepuff-themed purse, a gift from her husband the previous Christmas, hung there too. Inside was Kate's life, wallet and driving glasses, her anxiety medication, and most importantly, the keys to the Kia Soul she was leaning against. Go on, Joan said. I'm scared. Can I pray with you? Joan asked. She'd often suggested this, while waiting, either for a prospective employer to call, or for the results of a pregnancy test, or to hear whether their offer had been accepted for the very house she was afraid to go back inside of. And she'd usually indulged her mother-in-law, repeating the words, but not placing any stock in their power. This time, Kate thought she could use all the help she could get, 
and gave Joan the go-ahead. Lord, we need you now more than ever. Please be with Kyle and Megan in Kyle's time of trauma, and for my son while he anticipates the diagnosis. Please be with Kate as she goes to him. Give her the strength to know that you are with her, walking by her side as she enters her home. Hold her. Shield her. Please be her protector against the darkness within. Though she didn't believe, as Joan did, Kate could feel resolve creeping into her limbs, into her fingers and toes. While Kate didn't suppose that prayer was going to help anyone or anything specifically, maybe the simple act of speaking one's desires and concerns out loud helped in times of need, like letting off pressure rather than keeping it bottled inside. Though she may not believe as I do, remind her that she is your child and that you are holding her hand through not only this, but all the trials and tribulations of the physical world. We say this in your son's name. In unison, Kate and Joan both said, Amen. You've got the armor of God on you now. You always have and always will. Sometimes you just need a reminder. Now go. Be with your husband and your friends. Call me when you know something, okay? Kate was already walking toward the screen door, as if the divine pep talk had forced her into locomotion, and she whispered, Thank you, Mom. Love you. Joan responded in kind, and once the phone was slipped back into her pocket, Kate turned the door handle and went inside her home. While Kate did feel stronger, because of either the prayer or maybe the act of letting each and every thought out of her mind, the house was still oppressive, air heavy and thick. Like Kate was moving through water, Yet she crossed the kitchen and dropped down to put on her shoes. Her clothes were wet, and part of her wanted to change, but that meant going through the entire house, and that was asking a bit too much. Snatching her purse from the hook, she slung it over her head so the strap crossed her chest, and she was about to go back outside when she noticed the sliding glass door of the porch was still wide open. There was a moment where she considered leaving it, just checking on the dogs one last time, then getting in her car, but the pseudo-responsible part of herself wouldn't let that happen. There was the ever-present threat of evil, but the everyday fear of intruders, of thieves, had to be taken into consideration, or even the possibilities of invading rodents. Despite it all, she still maintained the pride of ownership in her house. Besides, didn't she have God or the universe on her side? Head held high, she strode through the room and slid the door closed then leaned down to secure the wooden bar in the track. It was when she turned back around that her bravery blinked away, and she felt that her legs would buckle. The shadowed figure was back in the entryway, just as it had been when she was outside, though now it stood between her and freedom. And this time, it wasn't alone. The shape was flanked by two others on either side. In her peripheral vision, she could see more beyond the pass-through into the parlor. Kate could feel more of them behind her now. It was as if they were being manifested, formed from the inky shadows of the house itself, rising up. Legion. They began to advance. Those in the kitchen shuffled toward her, while others began pulling themselves through the pass-through. She could feel breath on her neck, just as she had before, and Kate thought her heart might stop. Just give up the ghost then and there. If she had anything in her lungs she would have begun screaming. The room was now full of shadows, oily black shapes converging, tightening the knotted circle around where she stood, like an angry mob closing in to punish her. 
But for what? Disbelief? For daring to enter the home again? For ever considering it her home in the first place? The questions swirled, not landing on any answer specifically until she finally found the ability to cry out for help. But this was cut short as the circle constricted and fell on her, swallowing away any trace of her scream. Denny pressed the decline button on his phone. This had been the third call from his mother, probably wanting to invite him to church that morning as she often did. And while every part of him wanted to answer, and to fall into the safety of her voice, he wasn't ready to tell her everything that had been going on. He couldn't simply jump to the snake bite, but would need to explain the ghost hunters and the attack on the house, the selective earthquake, before getting to how he found himself in the waiting room of Augusta University Hospital. Why? Because it was all connected. How? He had no idea. None of it was making sense, and the more he tried to tether his racing thoughts, the further away an explanation seemed. Two uncomfortable waiting room chairs away, Megan appeared to be dealing with the same mental struggle, and neither had spoken since the doctor left them. A tall, balding man, with dark skin and a pencil mustache, the physician, came to find them two hours after they'd wheeled Kyle's unconscious body through the swinging doors. Since then, Denny had called Kate multiple times to find out what was taking her so long to get there, then laid out for Megan what had happened by the pool in excruciating detail, and she listened carefully, at various times saying she'd wish she'd been there, or that she hadn't been still asleep, as if her presence would somehow have stopped the attack from occurring, yet Denny was certain nothing could have stopped it. He was starting to believe that there was an element of fate to all of this, an inevitability that had brought them all here. He may not be able to pick out the thread that connected it all, but he was certain that an insidious plan had been set in motion, and each and every one of them were pawns, moved around or shoved over at will. And the doctor's words did nothing to dispel this notion. The man had begun by introducing himself as Dr. Kapoor, then explained that Kyle was stable, but it was still shaky, before asking what had happened. Denny repeated the truncated version of the story he'd given Megan, and as it progressed, the doctor's face contorted first into a grimace, then into a mask of frustration. Were you able to see what sort of animal it was? The snake? I don't know, it was dark, coiled and black, Denny said, his own frustration growing. I have no idea. Well, what I mean is, was this something you'd seen in the area before? A while back, my wife called animal control because she found a snake in the backyard, but I didn't see it. Otherwise, no. We live in the suburbs. Dr. Kapoor shifted his weight from one foot to the other. I apologize. I'm, I'm just trying to get more information. You see, we have an anti-venom on site here, and you... The snake was poisonous? Extremely. In fact, Mr. Myers isn't responding to the serum the same way other patients have. Hikers, farmers, they come in occasionally with swelling around the wound. But these are local animals that have bit them. Cottonmouths, copperheads, timber snakes... But your friend's condition is... different. The envenomation is particularly virulent. What does that mean? Megan said, her words shaking with new force. Well, we sent a sample of his blood for specific testing. Luckily, the lab is just two hours away in Atlanta, so we should know something sooner rather than later. Damn it, Megan said, loud enough that others in the waiting room turned to watch our conference. What are you waiting to know? What did you send away for? Denny watched Dr. Kapoor's mind working, 
thinking of the most diplomatic way of handling this conversation. Well, to find out how to treat his condition. This poison is a vicious neurotoxin, and it seems to be spread systemically, and our standard antivenom is slowing the circulation, but not stopping it. Denny's head spun, and he felt dizzy. He pictured the black snake clutching Kyle's leg, long fangs plunging into the flesh. Denny had stomped on it, felt bones or vertebra or whatever held snakes together crunch beneath his foot. Megan collapsed back into the chair behind her. Almost a whisper, she said, Can we see him now? Unfortunately, he's not out of the woods yet. He's stable enough. But when he wakes up, we may be able to move him into a visiting room. Wakes up? Megan asked. What are you talking about? Your friend is in a coma, the doctor said, and immediately put his hands into a halting motion. But before you think this is a bad thing, we induced it. We did so to help with the healing process, and to continue slowing the spread of the poison. This last sentence took the wind out of the room. Denny felt like he'd taken a right hook to his ribs. I'm sorry that I don't have more information at the present, but if you have other questions, please ask the desk to get in touch with me. Is he going to make it? Denny asked, realizing he was mimicking a quote from countless movie scripts he'd committed to memory. Dr. Kapoor dropped his head, not meeting either Megan or Denny's eyes. In my experience, I've found it so detrimental to give false hope. My honest opinion? I don't know. I've dealt with bites before, but these were single wounds. He was bit six times, and we simply don't know how much venom was introduced into his system. We are just going to have to be patient. With that, the man turned and hurried down the tile floor, through the same double doors where Kyle had been taken. Denny wanted to talk to Megan, to comfort her, or to somehow assuage any thoughts she might have about his involvement in her fiancé's condition. How could she not? But Denny kept quiet until the silence was unbearable. He needed fresh air. He needed to talk to Kate, to unload some of this on her. I'm going to go try and get a hold of Kate again, okay? Megan nodded without looking at him, and continued to examine the tile pattern beneath her feet. Once he was outside, Dennis Coleman tried his wife's cell again, and once again got her voicemail. Where the hell was she? Before he could second-guess himself, Denny was back in his jeep, speeding home. Along the way, he kept expecting to see the twisted remains of Kate's car, something to explain her absence, but there was no sign of this. In fact, when he'd reached the house, her car was still there, in the carport, and the door leading inside was wide open. Denny pulled in and stumbled out, still trying to make sense of everything. The sinking feeling that had begun with the doctor's inquiry was deepening, his stomach lining feeling as if it were on fire. No, this feeling started way before that, when they'd moved in, even when they'd tour the house prior to their lowball offer. As he descended into the carport, Denny realized that the bad feeling had been there all along. But it was subtle, like a toothache. And he, they, had just pushed forward, probably chalking up that sense of intuition to the fear of significant responsibility, of crippling debt. Then, as the strangeness and fear within the walls of the house intensified, the world outside came crashing down. He'd lost his job. He drank more. He and Kate were at odds, but keeping it together. And they had no outlet, no escape. They were trapped inside the haunted house, 
by a global pandemic, as well as their own commitments. The stress of everything was enough that the toothache was able to fester, grow, until now the infection, like the venom coursing through Kyle's body, could mean the end. Unless a remedy was found. The dog scratched at the laundry room door as Denny passed. He put a hand on the wood and said, Don't worry, girls. I'm going to go get your mom. Though, as he crossed the open threshold, Denny knew he'd lied. He knew Kate wasn't there. Somehow, he just knew. It was the same sort of feeling as being watched. Like, just how you can feel you aren't alone, sometimes you know that you are. The house smelled of churned earth, the musk of wet soil and decaying insects. Each subsequent step inside, the scent grew stronger, as if Denny were digging himself down into the lawn rather than walking through an air-conditioned house. Nothing was out of place, besides missing half their belongings, which were now sitting at the curb, in the kitchen or the parlor. But in the living room, Denny could see Kate's purse and cell phone lying on the hardwood. Poof! Like she'd vanished and the items fell where she'd stood. He walked over, but didn't pick them up, because what was the point? He'd just see missed calls with his own name. Instead, he went through the rest of the house, a cursory search of the bedrooms, closets, and bathrooms. He'd even checked behind the shower curtain, but it was useless. She wasn't in the house. And though he felt nauseous, he wasn't panicking. Maybe it was shock, or maybe it was because they knew this was coming. Somehow, subconsciously, again, like fate. When his parents came in the house, they found Denny sitting at the kitchen table, back to the window, with his head in his hands. He could hear them asking questions, talking over one another, panic obviously having arrived for them. But through his fingers, all Denny could manage to say was, She's gone. This episode of The Ghost Modernist was presented by Dr. Scarelove. Still, after 17 episodes, I'm so humbled that Simon has let me use his music for the show. Please check out the show notes for links to music from Atrium Carcheri and other incredible artists on the Cryo Chamber label. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at TheGhostModernist for more updates, and maybe some pictures of my dogs. If you're a fan of the story and haven't had the chance yet, please take a few minutes to rate and review on Apple Podcasts, as these help me get the word out and scare more people. There are no specific shout-outs this week, at least at the time of this recording, but that doesn't mean I don't want to give some love. Thank you to each and every listener who has been with me since the beginning. It's so rad to see that you're still on this journey with me, and with the Coleman family. That's it for this week. Remember, there are two types of people in the world, the haunters and the haunted. Which one are you?